morning, everybody. I have, in the past, I've kind of made a joke about um, being excited for a message, and I can't do that today, because although I'm looking forward to delivering this message, it's more of a burden. It's a burden that I think the Lord has put on my heart um, recently, I mean, you know, for the last year, for the last months, but but more so this weekend, and it's it's a burden to just make sure God's people understand his goodness and his glory and his power in the midst of everything swirling around us in this world, um, that he is and has always been a good God. And that's what I'm trying, that's what I just want to get off my chest today, so, so bear with me. There's a lot of scripture going to happen. If you're out there online, grab your Bibles. If you're here in-house, wherever you are, if you brought your Bibles, this is the place and the time to do it. I use a lot of scripture. If you're new here or maybe watching for one of the first times, um, I use a lot of scripture. I feel that the Word of God is sufficient for everything that we would ever need, and I just try. My job is just to make sense of that, make it all put together, make it real, Because the Word of God, the more you dig into it and the more you know about it, the more relevant and the more real it is. There's never a time when you just have to set aside like, I don't don't believe that, I don't know if that's real, but I'm just going to go with it and move on to the next thing. The Word of God stands up to all the scrutiny that we could ever throw at it, and it answers every question. Every question that we as human beings, that is, need to know to navigate this life is in there. And so as we go into this series, our series is called A Light Out of the Darkness. Um, what I'm focusing on leading up to Resurrection Sunday next weekend is just the idea that Jesus came into the world as the light to overcome the darkness. Now, we're never promised that the darkness isn't going to be there. In fact, we're promised just the opposite. The darkness is always going to be present. It's always going to be a part of our human experience until that time when Jesus returns. And, and it's been that way from the beginning. Our scripture, kind of our guiding scripture for this, I'll, just, uh, I'll show it to you on the screen here and I'll read it for you. 2 Corinthians 4, uh, verse 6. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And again, that's, that's echoing all the way back to Genesis 1-3, the first book of the Bible, the third verse. God said, let there be light. He separated light from darkness and, and saw that that light was a good thing. So that kind of guides our direction for, the, for this series. And today, today is Palm Sunday. Today is Palm Sunday. Yesterday at sundown began officially Passover. Uh, And I'll talk more about those as we go through the message, but it's one week until Resurrection Sunday. We have entered what's called Holy Week, and I anticipate, as happens every single year, more and more and more the attacks and the deception of the enemy ramp up during that time. Because he would love nothing more than just to distract us from what God is doing in our lives. We talk about Palm Sunday. A lot of people don't really understand the significance of Palm Sunday. Maybe Passover, we kind of know. But Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday really is taken right from Scripture. and It's an event. It's a real event that happened in a real place at a real time. 
and it has real significance. I want to talk about it really quick. So Palm Sunday, the idea for it is, is in an event that happened, again, over 2,000 years ago. It's from Matthew 21. Matthew 21, verses 8 and 9, and I'll read it to you. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. So picture, Jesus is coming into town. You can read Matthew 21 to see the whole account. But Jesus is, is riding into Jerusalem. A lot of times it's called the triumphal entry. Entry into Jerusalem, in triumph, the Messiah returning to Jerusalem. That's kind of what this is all about. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, literally laying down their cloaks to pave the way for their Messiah to arrive. And others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Okay, we, we take that to be palm branches that they're laying down. We don't know for sure. It could have been. But that's where the idea of Palm Sunday comes from. Now the crowds were, ahead of, were going ahead of him, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That gives us a clue right there when it says, Hosanna to the Son of David. Now these people would have been mostly probably Jews at the time. And they're knowing their, their history of Old Testament Scripture. They were waiting for a Messiah. They were excited. They prayed continually for the Messiah to arrive. And they knew what some of the signs were and what some of the things said. So when they said, Hosanna to the Son of David, they're hearkening back to the promises that, the, that their Scriptures had given them. The Son of David, He is here. And man, in their minds... Things are going to change, and they're going to change right now because here he is. And so they were just so, they were so over the top delighted that their Messiah had come, that they were spreading their cloaks on the ground. They were literally paving his way with palm branches. But today is an especially appropriate day then, being Palm Sunday, for our message. And our message is, is entitled, as part of this series, but it's the light extinguished by evil, and in parentheses, or so it would seem, because we know it didn't happen, but it sure feels that way, and it felt that way to them, because the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, these people were very excited about it. Those who were traveling with Jesus, they were very excited about it. They, they in their minds, thought they knew what this was going to look like. You know who wasn't excited about it? The religious establishment in Jerusalem. They were not excited about it because this was a challenge to them, and they knew that it was going to be. It caused such a stir. Now, maybe if he had just snuck into town, kind of under the radar, came in at night, maybe it would not have turned out the way, but he didn't come in quietly. He didn't sneak in. He was bold, man. When he came in, he came in with this whole entourage of people shouting, uh, that Hosanna in the highest to him comes in the name of the Lord. Can you imagine being one of the religious leaders, one of the high priest or the Pharisees or the Sadducees, any of those people, and hearing this going, oh, no, we have to do something about that. They knew they had to squash this somehow and squash it quickly. And he didn't let, once Jesus got there, he didn't lay low either. Anybody know the first thing he did when he got into Jerusalem? Okay. He goes into the temple and knocks over all the tables and, and, and trashes what's going on in the temple. Side note, another teaching for another day, but what was going on in the temple 
is that they were literally selling doves because people were coming in from all over the region. They had made big pilgrimages, a lot of them, coming in for the Passover celebration. And part of Passover is you had to sacrifice an animal as part of this. Well, if you're traveling hundreds of miles across the desert, either walking or on a camel or a donkey, whatever it is, it's kind of difficult to bring a lamb with you. So what they did is they sold doves. They sold doves there, these perfect blemish-free doves. But so they were selling them in the temple courtyards. Get your doves here. And even more than that, the people were not allowed legally to use their own money for commerce. So they had to exchange their money for Roman money, and the exchange rate was terrible. So not only did they have to come and buy these things in order to sacrifice, but they were being ripped off by the exchange rate. So that's why it says the money changers and the vendors, Jesus wasn't having that. So he came in and just immediately upset their whole apple cart, their whole, their whole income structure that they had built around the temple and around Passover, and they could not tolerate this threat to their status quo anymore. They could kind of turn a blind eye when he was out in the countryside doing his thing, but now he is. He's in their face, and he is challenging them, and he's not laying low. We're not having this, not in God's house. But not only could the establishment not accept this, Satan couldn't take it either. Satan had a problem with this. And what he would do is he would manipulate these men, the religious leadership of the day, and others, he would manipulate them for his purposes. These men, by the way, the religious establishment, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priests, they had spent their lives. They get a bad rap. They get... They get Uh, and deservedly so in some cases, but a lot is heaped on them. But these men spent their entire lives in pursuit of the knowledge of God and pursuing knowing more about God and serving Him. Now, like anything, it got sideways. They had a misunderstanding of Scripture and the law, but I think they started out, their heart was in the right place. But again, like anybody, things get off the rails sometimes, but, <clears throat> excuse me, but these men were desperate for a, Messiah, for a Messiah as well. They knew what the Messiah should have looked like. They were desperate for that just as the people were. The problem is, is that Jesus not only didn't fit the mold of what they expected, but he was challenging them right out of the gate, challenging the way they do things. And like anybody, their pride kind of rose up and they said, uh-uh, we are not having that. So Satan would then enlist these men, and again, and others, even, even Jesus' own friends and disciples, to try and snuff out the light before it even had a chance to shine the brightest. So quick recap. The first week of this message, we talked about a world in darkness, desperately in need for a light. If you're out there online or even here in-house, you can go back, Facebook, YouTube, or our own website, and you can see the archives and pick up those messages if you'd like. Uh, Second week, we talked about the fact that the light in the form of a Messiah had been promised from the very beginning. But when he came, so many people just flat missed him, and, and many just rejected him. Last week, we specifically looked at the reason why the light is offensive. The gospel message of Jesus is offensive because it is so narrow. We talked about that. And... More importantly, I think, what 
those who call themselves followers of Christ, those who, who hear the great commission given to us by Jesus to go forth and make disciples, how can we do that in light of the fact that the gospel message that we preach is so often seen as offensive? If you want to check those out, you can. John 1, 5 says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. We know that, but it doesn't just happen in a vacuum. We have a part to play in this. We have a part in either allowing the darkness or in some cases participating in the darkness or exalting the light and bringing the light into wherever we are. We have a role. It doesn't just happen and we get to sit back and watch. We have a role to play. And remember, I also, from 1 Corinthians 1.18, the gospel of Jesus is not only often seen as offensive, but those who proclaim it as foolish. Yet another lie, another scheme from the enemy to try and keep us embarrassed of this gospel message. Keep that. You can believe it if you want, but just keep it to yourself because everybody's going to laugh at you. You're going to be ostracized. 1 Corinthians 1.18, we have that on the screen. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel message contains the very power of God. The gospel message of a resurrected Christ is often, though, by the world at large, put in the same category with fairy tales. Might be fun to believe. It's a good collection of stories. Um, It's entertaining to talk about, but really no truly enlightened, educated person would take them seriously or take them literally. We see that over and over again. But I want to share with you a couple things, and this is kind of the burden that's on my heart, the existence of Jesus and his teachings and everything that Scripture says isn't just a matter, well, we just have to take it on blind faith. It can all be backed up, proven, corroborated by outside stories. It is true, and it is real, and we can prove it. I'm going to start doing a little bit of that right now. First of all, the, ex- the existence of Jesus of Nazareth is almost universally accepted. Christians, non-Christians alike, as documented fact. There's documentation all over the place, all kinds of sources that Jesus existed. Jesus went around teaching. Okay, there's a lot of it. Here's a couple examples. Um, the Roman historian Tacitus Okay, wrote, and this is 64 AD, so very, very early on, he was reporting, basically just documenting Emperor Nero's decision to blame Christians for the fact that Rome burnt down, right? He wanted to do that. So, so Tacitus describes it like this. This is straight from his words. Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty that they would have known immediately that meant crucifixion during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of evil, but even in Rome. Okay, now he's writing that from a secular, non-Christian standpoint, just documenting from it. So he calls it a mischievous superstition. He's not saying I'm immediately a follower of Christ. He's simply documenting that these things happened. Christ existed. He had followers. He was crucified by Pontius Pilate. 
So all these things are, are documented, and that's not the only place. There's many more. Jesus' ministry and teachings are also corroborated by credible outside sources. Here's another one. A guy named Pliny the Younger, um, he wrote a letter. He was a, he was a governor. He was a Roman governor in Asia Minor. And he wrote in 112 AD, he wrote to Emperor Trajan, and he was asking, um, look, these Christians are everywhere now. I need to know from you, because you're in charge, I need to know how to handle these guys. Do I prosecute them normally if they commit crimes? Do I, do I even let them exist? He's just asking for advice, right? Again, he's not a believer. He's just asking for advice. And he writes this about Christians. They were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God and bound themselves by a solemn oath, not to any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up, after which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food. Early reference to potlucks there. <laughs> but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. Okay, again, he's not a Christian, but he's saying, look, the, these people, these Christians are gathering around, and here's some of the things that they adhere to. They, no wicked deeds, never to commit fraud, theft, or adultery. Oh, my gosh, we have to put a stop to these people, right? That's kind of what he's saying here. But, again, an outside, non-Christian source talking about the way that these Christians handled themselves. Jesus' sermons and wisdom have often been adopted and retold across generations, across believers, non-believers alike, and has kind of even become just common everyday uh, parlance that we use. Things like an eye for an eye, turn the other cheek, the golden rule, which is do unto others, all come directly from the teachings of Jesus Christ. And yet they're, they're adopted all over the world as like, hey, that's, that's a good idea. So we see that all the time. Even if you tell somebody who's non-Christian that, hey, that came from the Bible, Jesus said that, they'd probably like, okay, it's pretty, it's pretty good idea wherever it came from, right? Even the reported miracles that Jesus performed are usually admitted to have happened, okay? Now, the secular world in large part would attribute those things to scientific reasons. There's volumes of material out there online or in print that talk about the reasons why all these various miracles that Jesus performed could have happened, they explain them from a scientific standpoint. Things like healing, healing the bleeding of the woman, leprosy, blindness, all these things. Some attribute them to the placebo effect. Some attribute them to this psychosomatic kind of effect or, or hypnotism. Even walking on water, one of the most recognizable miracles that Jesus performed. There is a theory out there that it was partially submerged ice patches in the Sea of Galilee, uh, you know, and, and they have this whole scientific rationale how that could have happened. But fact is, you could talk about it and they'd say, yeah, I believe that that happened. I think it happened because of this other reason. But they would still acknowledge that it happened. Most other major religions accept that Jesus was a real person. Most of them, okay? So Islam, Hindus, Buddhists, Sikhs, all mention Jesus and, and have various attitudes towards him, but they all acknowledge that he existed. They acknowledge that he was a, a prophet or a teacher. 
um, and they and they give him credit for having existed. Even the most really the most hardened atheist that you would talk to would admit that Jesus walked around the Galilee preaching to anyone who would listen. You're probably not going to find a lot of pushback on that. Now they might just say, "Well, he was just a good teacher." He was just a good moral guy who went around and teaching. And you're not going to get an awful lot of pushback. Here's where the problem comes in. When we start preaching the gospel message, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's where people get off the train. That's what trips a lot of people up. Okay, Jesus might have been a good guy. He might have taught all these things. He was a good teacher. He did some of these kind of things. But eh, I don't know about that. The problem is, in that, in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is where the power, that's where the power meets the road. That's not how that saying goes. That's all right. The power meets the road anyway. If you can't get the power to the road, what good is it going to do? Because in it lies the power of God manifest manifest in Jesus Christ, the triumph of light over darkness, the hope of glory, all those things wrap up and are manifest in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel account, that very thing, the resurrection, Christ crucified and resurrected, is, has been under attack since the name Jesus of Nazareth ever first became known. It has been under attack from the very beginning. Satan knows that if he can disprove or call into into question that event, then the power of the gospel message is diminished. But it can. In over 2,000 years, it has never been disproved. Questions, people poke at it, but it has never been disproved. It can stand up to scrutiny. Two things I want to mention. At the back of the sanctuary, again, if you're out there online and you want one, message us in the chat boards. We'll get one to you. But if you're here in-house, on the back table, we have The Case for Easter. It's a book, just a very small, easy read by Lee Strobel, where he goes in and he really lays out a great, like an investigative case, proving that the resurrection of Christ happened. Please take one. If you've never read it, take one. We don't charge anything. If you know somebody who is a skeptic at home, my neighbor's a skeptic, take it for them. I want them to go out. I will be so sad if they're all sitting there at the end. Please take them. The other thing we have is a class, and we've done it before. We didn't do it during COVID, but it's called Bedrock. It's a series of classes whereby we go in. We look at the Bible, the authenticity of the Bible. We look at the various aspects of the Christian faith, and we look at them from a a, a prove-it-to-me standpoint. Show me that this could have happened. And we're going to start that up probably in, in the next month or so. Watch for dates for that. We're going to do that class. But all that's to say, the number one argument for those who doubt the authenticity of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ is usually some variation of this statement. So you expect me to believe fill in the blank. There's rarely any hard evidence. It's usually just, no way did that really happen. And that's that's a weak argument. My answer to that is, yes, I do expect you to believe it because it's a matter of life and death. 
It is that important, and we can't just let it go at that. The authenticity of the gospel account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is at the very core of the Christian faith, like I said. Without it, without it, the power of the gospel is reduced to just a collection of good ideas and good wisdom. Valuable, but it doesn't have the power. You know what the power of God can do? Scripture is all full of things the power of God can do. Let me just read a couple to you, or... Three is not a couple. Three is a few. Number one, Romans 8, 38, 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a lot of things that the power of the gospel can overcome. Isaiah 61, go back to Old Testament. Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news. That's gospel. Good news means gospel. Good news to the humble. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to captives and freedom to prisoners. Release to captives, freedom to prisoners. That's the good news. And then back even more, Psalm 23.4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You ever feel like we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death right now? It feels that way sometimes, doesn't it? We have nothing to fear. The power of the gospel message brings that that home to us. That kind of power now doesn't just manifest through a bunch of good ideas, does it? Good ideas, a nice... Bible's a good self-help book on how to live your life. Only through Jesus and him resurrected does that kind of power manifest in our lives. That's why really from the very beginning, Satan was so intent on destroying Jesus. So intent on causing Jesus or tricking him, which is his primary, uh, his primary weapon, into renouncing his rightful authority. If you remember all the way back, Matthew 4, 8 and 9, this is after Jesus, Jesus had just begun his public ministry. Okay, Jesus had been baptized. He said, here we go. The first thing he does, he wants to go out in the desert and, and fast and prepare himself for what's to come. And we pick up this, Matthew 4, 8, and 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. So he's offering Jesus, and Jesus already has all these things. But Satan doesn't understand that. And he's saying, I will give all these things to you if you just worship me. Satan's constantly been trying, and there he's actually going against Jesus himself. So failing in that attempt, okay, Jesus, Jesus rebuked all of those attempts. You can read Matthew 4 for, for the whole story there. But failing in that attempt, Satan then orchestrated what he thought was this clever scheme to eliminate Jesus at the next opportunity, okay? What he would do, he would use Jesus' closest friends against him. Remember a guy named Judas from the Bible? Really obscure character. Maybe a lot of people haven't heard of him. Judas always gets a bad rap. He does, because the things he did were terrible, but I would argue that Jesus was, or Judas, 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 let me start over. I would argue that Judas was almost a victim 
was almost a victim. He was being used, controlled, manipulated by Satan. See, Judas knew Jesus clearly. He knew him very well. But he had not yet been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Okay, that didn't happen until later. Now, he knew Jesus, knew Jesus' teaching. And in fact, at one point, Judas was one of the 72 that was sent out by Jesus to heal, to drive out demons, to spread the gospel, to, to, Scripture says, to prepare the harvest. He was sent out and he was empowered by Jesus along with the other 72 to do those things. This is from Luke, Luke 10, 16. Jesus tells them, the one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. But the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So he's saying literally, you, you are speaking for me. I'm empowering you to go into the world, and you speak for me. And if they reject you, they're rejecting me and also my father. Then my favorite for the spiritual authority, the spiritual warfare authority that Christ delegated to his disciples at that time, and then through us, Luke 10, 19. Behold, I have given you authority to walk on snakes and scorpions and authority over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Jesus gave us that authority to speak for him, authority over snakes and scorpions, which is a metaphor there for evil of all kinds. But even with that power and authority delegated to him, Judas couldn't withstand the temptation that came his way. Why do you think that is? It's the very same reason why you and I have that delegated authority from Jesus Christ, and we are so often tempted, and we so often fail. It's because Jesus is relentless. Uh, Jesus. <coughs> Judas. <coughs> Judas had been singled out by Satan. Satan is relentless. I need to slow down. I got a lot of pages to go through, so I'm trying to go fast. Apologize. Satan is relentless. And Satan knows the places and the ways that he can get at you. The way that he'll get at you is not the same way he'll get at the person that's next to you. And in this case, Judas was tempted by money. He was singled out by Satan and used in a certain way. So Luke 22, 1 to 2. This is, the, this is coming into Passover. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the scribes were trying to find a way to put him, Jesus that is, to death, since they were afraid of the people. Remember the big fuss when Jesus came in to Jerusalem? They could not allow this groundswell to go any further. So they're trying to figure out a way to end this, to literally to kill him. And they had to do it quickly. It had to be before the Passover meal. Now Luke 22, 3 and 4. Listen to this. And Satan entered Judas, the one called Iscariot, who belonged to the number of the twelve. And he left and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he was going to, to betray him to them. That word, let's go back to that word entered, because that word entered is really, really important. Let's look at it. That word entered, it's a Greek word. I'm going to try and pronounce it really. It's, it's isercomai. And what it means, the definition literally is persuaded into agreement. Persuaded into agreement. So Satan 
went to, it's kind of like we entered into an agreement, right? We still use that kind of terminology today. Satan went to Judas, persuaded him to do this. And then Judas left and went to the chief priests and discussed with them how it was going to happen. Now, we'll pick this up, pick this very story up in Matthew's account. Matthew 26, 14 to 16 says, Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscario, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they set out for him thirty pieces of silver. And from then on, he looked for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. See, up until this point, Satan was manipulating Judas with money. Judas was the treasurer of the group. We knew that. He was, must have been very money-focused. They knew that that's how they would get to him. And they got to him. Now, <clears throat> this time, though, here's what's important. I'm going to read this for you. Judas makes a conscious decision. It's not a manipulation. It's not, a, it's not you're falling uh, for a lie. It's a conscious decision that Judas makes to betray Jesus. Now, we know the, the image of the Last Supper. S- Supper. The Last Supper. There's an artist. His name is Raffaele. Now, Raffaele is a, he, in the 1800s, he painted this. This is from uh, Da Vinci's Last Supper, but he, he blows it up. Now, this is just the left-hand side of the line here. This guy right here, that's Judas. Okay, Judas, he's clutching a little bag of money. That's kind of the scene right there. Now, there's obviously another half to the right, but that's just a detail of it. Here's what happened at this point, though. John chapter 13, verses 26, 27. Got those on screen, too. Jesus then answered. This is Jesus saying, one of you is going to betray me. And they say, and they say who? Which, which one of us is going to betray you? And Jesus answered then, that man is the one for whom I, ha- I shall dip this piece of bread and give it to him. So when he had dipped the piece of bread and took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon, after this, Satan then entered him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you are doing, do it quickly. Let's look back again at that word entered. It's gone. That word entered right there is a different word. It's the same word, but a different root, and it's Iselden. And it's the same spelling, essentially, but Iselden. And the definition, this is important, to go into or occupy. So before he was being misled, he was being lied to, he was being influenced, and he made the decision, I'm going to go I'm going to go collect this money. I'm going to make the plans. I'm going to do all these things. Then he has this opportunity at that supper table to literally make a choice. I'm going to follow through with this or I recognize because my Lord and Savior is looking me in the eye and he takes it. And at that moment, he makes the conscious decision to side with evil, to side with the dark, over the light of Jesus Christ. And at that moment, Scripture says, then Satan entered into him. That's what happens with us. Now, as a Christian, we cannot be possessed because we belong to Jesus Christ. But we can be lied to. We can be tricked. We can fall victim to those lies and tricks. The problem is, when we give Satan a higher level of authority in our lives, a higher level of access to our daily lives, is that moment when we decide, I'm okay with the darkness. 
I'm okay with a certain amount of darkness in my life. In fact, I'll accommodate that, I'll hide it, maybe I'll even enjoy it. That is at that moment that we give Satan a higher level of access in our lives. Scripture says to enter into or occupy. We can be deceived and even fail more often than not, but it's that intentionality in our hearts that we allow it that opens that wider door to demonic influence. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, we have little chance. And even with Christ and the Holy Spirit in us, there's still a daily battle. Still happens. So a question I have for you. In this battle between light and dark, does it ever feel to you like evil's winning? Does it seem like evil's winning? It does to me. All you have to do is turn on the news. Listen to just some random headlines here. I don't mean to go over this quickly, but 10 lives lost in Boulder to a man who gave in to rage and hate. All over, the, all over our country, California, New York, Atlanta, anti-Asian violence and murder just simply because of who they are and who they might represent to somebody. 22 killed, another 23 wounded in a Texas Walmart over somebody who was, who was deceived about conspiracy theories. Over 19,000 homicides in the U.S. last year. 19,000 homicides. 774 murders in Chicago alone. Look at this chart that I found. This chart, unprecedented murder spike. Look at all those percentages. Murder just shooting through the roof as people get frustrated by COVID, yes. Okay? But more and more, it's becoming acceptable to hate someone because they don't believe the same as you. It's acceptable to, to have violence and hate in your heart against someone just because they're different than you. And it's becoming something that our society is beginning to accommodate. Our society looks at things like that. No sooner had the violence in Boulder happened that the apologists were online already saying it's because this happened, it's because these people caused it and made him, and pointing back to our former president, pointing back to him, saying, oh, it's because of what he said and did that it really spawned that, so it's really his fault. We make apologies. Our culture is so quick to make apologies for evil, to make accommodations for evil, and to allow evil, to turn a blind eye to it and say, okay, well, if they want to do that, it's okay, as long as it doesn't hit me. How about the over half a million COVID deaths in the United States alone? Almost three million worldwide. Here's another one. This one hit me yesterday. A good friend of mine, sitting right there, sent this to me yesterday, and I hadn't seen this before. I have to talk about this. There's a rapper out there. I don't even want to mention his name. He's teamed up with Nike, okay? Nike, the, the shoe manufacturer, to produce a shoe called Satan Shoes. I'm not making this up, okay? When I got that text, I had to go research it because I said, nuh-uh, there's no way this is happening. I spent my whole life wanting a pair of Nike Cortez tennis shoes. Those of you who are about my age know that was the coolest thing you could do in the 80s. I was never cool enough to pull them off. 
until recently when I just told myself, who cares if you're cool or not, wear the shoes. So you might notice I normally preach in a pair of white Nike tennis shoes, Nike Cortez, okay? Not anymore. I feel convicted they're gone along with any other thing. And that's me. I'm not telling you you have to do this. This is me. And here's why. These shoes, these Satan shoes, they're making 666 pairs of them. Limited edition. Oh, you wait. It gets worse. They include a pentagram medallion on the, on the laces. The number 666 embroidered on the back. Luke 10.18 written on the side. Remember I quoted you Luke 10.16 and Luke 10.19. Luke 10.18 is, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. It says that embroidered on the side. And probably the most overtly evil thing I have ever seen from a major corporation, a drop of human blood molded into the soles of every shoe. What exactly? I said that like, no way. That's true. Let me show you a picture. Quick picture. This is what it looks like. That's the guy and that's the shoe. They're being sold and marketed out there. They're over $1,000 a pair. Take that off the screen. Over $1,000 a pair. They're going to be released March 29th during Holy Week. Is that a coincidence, you think? The headlines, I'll let the Lord convict you on that as necessary. Again, I'm not saying that has to happen, but for me, I'm not going to make accommodations. When things happened years ago uh, with Nike, I turned my back on it and said, maybe it's just a PR move. Maybe they're just trying to just be, be neutral in this thing. And I made accommodations for it. I can't do it anymore. I can't make accommodations for outright overt evil. And I won't do it. The headlines go on and on and on. We become so desensitized to it that our first impulse is often to just make accommodations or, or try and ignore it. But as horrible as that is, it's not new. It's, no, it's really, it's nothing new. Genocide, Jewish Holocaust, wars, the tribes of Israel and Judah. Most of the Old Testament is how the tribes of Israel and Judah went far beyond what God told them to do and accommodated evil in their lives. Rather than just eliminate it and walk away from it, they allowed it, thinking, well, we'll just allow a little of it, and it won't hurt us. Over and over again, it did. Those of you who are in the ladies' Bible study, read Judges, Judges chapter 1. Just stories about how the accommodation for evil always leads to death. We cannot accommodate evil in our lives. We can't accept it. So you hear all those things, all those headlines, the shoes and all this, and you just think that evil darkness is creeping in and winning. But remember, the earlier scripture that I, that I read at the front, John 1, 5, I'll read it again to you. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Amen. Think about the disciples in Jesus' day, though. Think about how Jesus came as an answer to a promise, an answer to prayers, an answer to, to everything that they wanted. They knew the scriptures about a Messiah. And those, when they found him, they rejoiced. Our Messiah is here again. Now things are going to change. Our Messiah, Jesus, is going to go in there and kick butt and take names. That's what he's going to do. Things are changing, and they're changing today. 
They expected a different world, and they said, Jesus, we will follow you into battle. They were ready for that. So how do you think they felt when their Messiah, their leader, willingly gave himself up for captivity, judgment, torture, and crucifixion on the cross? We know for a fact that Peter wasn't cool with it. Remember the story? Even after all the teachings of Jesus, trying to teach them, here's how it's going to happen. Here's how it's going to go down. They still didn't quite get it. I think, I think they understood it, but in some of their minds are like, I hope I'm hearing this wrong. And really, it's going to play out differently than what he's saying. But here's the scene here in the garden, John 18.10. Then Simon Peter, since he had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me. Am I not to drink it? Again, Jesus said, this is how it's supposed to go down, but they didn't want to believe it. They didn't want to believe it. You think of the disciples as being all these gentle people walking around. Simon Peter, he had a sword on him. Probably most of them did, and he knew how to use it. He's probably going for for the slave's head. Got his ear, in fact. But how do you think they felt? They had to watch their Messiah give himself up to be tortured and killed. It probably, to them, seemed like dark, that, that's it. Darkness wins. Evil wins. This is our Messiah. We were putting our hopes in him, following him. Let me pick up the, the account of what happens here, and I'll read some. I'll put a couple on screen. Matthew 27, 27 to 29. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort to him. And they stripped him and put a red cloak on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Matthew 27, 30, 31. And they spit on him and took the reed and beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the cloak off him and put on his own garments, put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. Matthew 27, 33, 34. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, also translates as Calvary, they gave him wine mixed with bile to drink. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink it. In other words, Jesus said, I don't even want that wine mixed with gall. It was a a sedative, kind of a narcotic. And he said, I don't don't want it. I don't want anything that will separate me from what's happening here. Matthew 27, 35, 37. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Matthew 27, 39, and 40. And those passing by were speaking abusively to him, shaking their heads and saying, who, who are you, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself if you're the Son of God. Come down from the cross, mocking him. Matthew 27, 42. He saved others. He can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we'll believe him. Matthew 27, 44, and the rebels who had been crucified with him were also insulting him in the same way. These two others who were being crucified at the same time even started mocking him. 
the disciples had to be, this is not how this is supposed to go. That man being crucified and taunted and tormented and just sitting there and taking it, that's not how this is supposed to happen. If I was in the crowd, I would be going, oh, you wait. Any second now, the lightning bolt is going to come from his fingers and fry all of you. That's what I would have been thinking. Would you probably same thing? At what point? Wait, this is going to get good. Just wait. But it doesn't. But it doesn't happen. That's not how they thought it was going to happen. And then Luke 23, 44, 45. It was about, it was now about the sixth hour. And darkness came over the entire land until the ninth hour. Because the sun stopped shining and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Now that time, the sixth hour, that's a, a time span from noon to about 3 p.m. In the, in the Hebrew time system. We know for a fact, I want to share this with you, we know for a fact it could not have been an eclipse, okay? This wasn't an eclipse, but it did happen. Passover always begins on a full moon, so there's no, there's no astrological way, uh, or not astrology, but astronomy. There's no way that it could have been an eclipse. This fact is documented by outside sources, the fact that this happened. A couple different ones I'll share with you really quick. The Greek astronomer Phlegion wrote, he wrote this, in the year of the 202nd Olympiad, that the greatest eclipse of the sun which was ever known happened then. For the day was so turned into night that the stars in heaven were seen. Just a quick, the ancient Greeks used Olympiads to mark time. That's kind of how they marked time. And the first one was in 776 B.C., so if you do the math and all those four-year intervals, the 202nd would have been about 30 A.D. Would have been about the same time that history tells us this happened. The Greek historian Eusebius wrote this. This is about 300 A.D. He wrote this. Christ suffered this year, in which time there was a defection of the sun. A defection of the sun. Bithynia was shaken with an earthquake, and many houses fell down in the city of Nice. So these things being documented by outside sources that it actually happened. And I tell you these things so that you know the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. Because if any part of it is not true, if any part of it can be disproven, then it calls the whole thing into question. It happened, and you don't have to just read the Bible and say, just take it on blind faith. It's there for us. Everything happened just as the Bible describes and here's why this is especially important, because in the end days, as things, as the kingdom consummates, as Jesus returns, as we go into times of tribulation, wherever you fall on pre-mid or post-tribulation, we have these signs given to us in the word of God that things will happen, and here's how they'll happen. And we are told time and time again to persevere and do not make accommodations for evil. Do not allow even a little bit into your life thinking it's going to be okay. Mistakes are fine. Recognize the mistake. Repent of it. Purge that from your life. But don't just go, eh, it's just a little bit and it's not a big deal. We cannot accommodate it. Scripture tells us to look for these signs. In fact, in the end times, we'll see, we see in Revelation that in the end of days, this thing with the sun darkening, it's going to be another sign. And by knowing Scripture, we know those things. Jesus tried to tell his disciples this is exactly what would happen, Matthew 24, 29 to 31. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, he's explaining to them, 
The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet blast, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. That's why we have scripture, to read that, and so that we know in the midst of all this, we can persevere through this because we know Jesus triumphed over the cross. He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead in the power of God. And without knowing that that is true, how can we look forward to the things to come and then persevere through them? Without the benefit of the scriptures we have now, the disciples just reacted out of their flesh, mostly not understanding this thing. Mark 16 says that after Jesus was crucified on the cross, they were mourning and weeping. And in fact, when they were told that he was resurrected, they they didn't believe it. They were in that place. They weren't in this great place of faith saying, he told us he'd, he'd raise again, so just get ready. Let's be ready. They were mourning and weeping. Because in their minds, his death had he stayed there, would have erased generations of promises that they had been given, promises and prophecy erased in a single day. What do they have left to count on? All right, I want to wrap this up. The word of the cross is not foolishness. It is not a nice story for those simple-minded people who just want to believe in a fairy tale. To us and to those who are being saved, it is the very power of God. That's why we study this. That's why next week we will celebrate the resurrection of Christ, the triumph of Christ over death in the grave. Even though today there have been about 2,000 years of teaching complete with, with documentary proof of the resurrection of Jesus, many today still doubt that power of the cross. That power of the cross to fulfill the promises of God, to set the captives free, and to bring all of those who believe in him into the light. Let's pray. Father God, we just, we come to you in in all humility and we just, we repent of those places in our lives where we have allowed evil, those places in our lives where we have made accommodations for evil. Father God, show those to us. Maybe we don't even see it. Maybe we're blind to those things. But Father God, open our eyes to those places where we have done that and help us to have the boldness and the strength to set them aside and pursue your glorious light. So Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to reconcile us to you. We thank you for the power of the cross and we thank you that by that we have the Holy Spirit and we can not only identify but stand against the lies of the enemy. Father, help us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And next week, next week is Resurrection Sunday. Join us. Invite a friend. I would pray that next week we have no empty chairs, either service. Invite a friend to come and hear the power of the triumph of the grave. Hey, let's take communion together really quick. If you're out there at home, grab your supplies. If you're here in-house, we have them at the table in the back. But let's do this. If you have a...
who Jesus is to you, Jesus is, go write it on that board. There's still open spaces. I want to fill that up. Who is Jesus to you? We have prayer team in the back. Watch for the lanyard. If you need somebody to pray with you and help you agree with you about this, about evil in your life or anything that's going on, you can leave a a comment in the chat boards. We will pray for you. Grab a case for Easter book on the way out. This moment today, as we read about this idea of of this last supper, this time where Judas betrayed Jesus, that last supper, that last Passover feast that they had together, really, Passover was a celebration of God's mercy and deliverance from captivity. And it was a, it was a tangible sign to be celebrated of the old covenant. But at that moment, it became the first communion. The first communion that we celebrate now, accepting the new covenant of Jesus Christ. And we partake in the body and blood of Christ to remember that. Scriptures from Matthew. Now while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is being poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, we thank you and we praise you this day and every day. It's in your name we pray.